Hi, this is Steve Thompson, and today we're cuddling up with just three short verses. Your coffee's not even going to have time to cool, so let's just dial it in to Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. Jesus replied, My mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. This little event that Luke records, he's using to wrap up the section that we started yesterday on obeying on obeying God's word. And the very next words that we start to read in verse 22 are one day. That's a verbal cue that Luke likes to use, that he's about to move on to another subject or episode or another thought. It's a transition. But I think the first readers of this book may have very well stopped there anyway to just go back and make sure that they had actually read what they thought they read. I mean, did Jesus just say what I think he said? They would have been offended by this. If there was ever a culture in a time period where family values and family bonds, connections, were unquestionably central to the fabric of society, it was here and now. And Jesus takes these sacred, honored relationships with his mother and his brothers, and he's saying, if those become an excuse for missing out on God's family then you don't understand God's values. You don't get how God sees things. Now, I don't know what your situation is right now. It may be way messier than my situation, and you feel like you don't need another challenging thought from Jesus. But I suspect that a lot of us could use a dose of being offended by Jesus again. A lot of what he said offends our sensibilities. I know I need that. And so... I'd like to read for you a section out of a book that has really challenged me. And um, so I'm going to let this challenge all of us again today. It's from a book called Untamed by Alan and Deborah Hirsch. And I'm using this with permission from Baker Books, a division of Baker Publishing Group. And the book is copyrighted 2010. Here's what they say in chapter 6. We'll never forget years ago the confused and distressed look on one of our friend's faces. Kath had just returned from speaking at a fairly large, middle-class church in the Bible Belt of our city. She had been invited to speak about the work she did with the possibility of generating some type of support, and not simply the checkbook variety. The youth organization Kath worked with had developed a fairly effective ministry to young teenage girls who, for various reasons, found themselves homeless. One aspect of the ministry was to provide accommodations, so they had set up a number of community homes in which our friend worked both as a lead tenant and director. The problem was that they had a huge waiting list of young homeless girls who couldn't be accommodated because they had run out of rooms. So during her message that morning, Kath appealed to the congregation and asked them if anyone among them was willing to house some of these girls over the short to medium term. She emphasized that it wouldn't be a permanent thing and that she wasn't asking for them to provide for the girls' emotional and psychological needs as the ministry would look after them. All she was asking for was just a roof over their heads, without which they may remain on the streets. After the service, Kath was 
inundated with people wishing her well and congratulating her on the good work she was doing, and some promised to pray regularly for her. Some who were deeply touched gave money, but no one, not one person, offered to take in one of the many girls they had on their books. Kath came back from church that morning pretty deflated. She said she didn't really need the money, or even the well wishes. What she really needed was accommodation. What disturbed her more than anything else was that she knew that many of those families did indeed have spare rooms in their homes and had ample resources to make a difference. But for reasons probably related to a sense of safety and security for their family, and perhaps fear of the stranger, these Christians chose not to open their homes. What's going on here? Why would so many followers of Jesus close their hearts to people in desperate need? In the Bible, hospitality is just assumed to be part of it. Living in a culture that valued extended relationships, people inherited a sense of obligation and felt a personal responsibility to give hospitality to both friends and strangers. The Gospels portray Jesus entertaining and being entertained in many different situations. Some of these took place around the table of people who were actually hostile to what Jesus was all about. And we are directly encouraged to entertain strangers with the possibility that they might be angels, Hebrews 13.2. Surely our lack of hospitality points to something deficient in our culture, our sense of missional obligation, and therefore also our discipleship. I'm going to skip over a page and have him have them describe what it's like now now in the single family home both parents pursue careers often in order to pursue the idealized vision of the middle class home created by late capitalism responsibilities beyond that of the direct nuclear family have been relinquished and have narrowed even more as child rearing was eventually outsourced to prof professionals and schools people now work all day in pursuit of a materialistic vision of the good life generated by marketing, only to come home exhausted to a house full of appliances and alienated relationships. Family relations are stretched to a maximum. Witness the skyrocketing divorce rates and increasing alienation of children from their parents and from each other. The so-called screenagers are now raised and mentored by screens, be they TVs, computers, video games, or movie theaters. And all of this in the name of keeping our means of production operating at peak capacity. The Matrix again? Under such enormous cultural pressures and stress, families have become highly protective. They have become fortresses from the world around us, defensive units designed to keep the cultural onslaughts at bay. Sociologist Christopher Lash calls it our, quote, haven in a heartless world, unquote, in a book on the family by that name. This is our space, and those we invite into that space are carefully chosen based on whether they will upset the delicate status quo, inconvenience us, or pose a threat to our perceived safety. In other words, visitors, especially strange ones, stress us out. And while this is in some sense culturally understandable, the negative result in terms of our spirituality is that the family has effectively become a pernicious idol a sphere where the commands of the Shema are no longer applied to the whole life. Culture has once again trumped our social responsibility. In such a situation, missional hospitality is seen as a threat, not as an opportunity to extend the kingdom. So an idol, a sphere of life dissociated from the claims of God, is born. None of us intended this. We simply inherited it. We never stopped to seriously question it. But we can and must do something about it. 
skipping over again to page 170, the perfect family, if there is such a thing, is not an idealized nuclear unit of consumption, but an inclusive, warm, inviting environment where people can get a glimpse of true community and therefore heaven. In contrast to the narrower perspective of the nuclear family, the Bible has a much larger vision that incorporates the nuclear unit but goes well beyond it to include grandparents, cousins, friends, servants, and the stranger. This is no family-first approach as we now conceive it. Rather, for disciples, it must be Jesus first and all things in relation to him. Only by seeing Jesus and all that he means can we begin to build families that serve the one and final reality which we call the kingdom of God. Jesus, following the logic of Shema spirituality, radically redefines all our loyalties, including those of family relations, around himself. Our love for parents may even appear to be hostility in comparison with our love for him. So I don't know about you, but those words have rattled my thinking and my own view of my family. But I think that's exactly how Jesus might pose the question to us today. Is your family, your immediate family, in whatever form that takes, is it an idol in your life? Or is your family subsumed in God's broader definition of family? Is your focus on your immediate family? Or is your family focused by Jesus as a tool for his mission, his redemption, his agenda in your spheres of influence? Why don't we just take some time to listen to what God might say to us on this matter this morning. Holy Spirit, speak to us honestly about how we view our families. And if they are in any kind of unhealthy place, then in your creativity, bring to our minds steps that we could take to help our families respond to your challenge, your word, your inspiration. Because we are yours. Our families are yours. So how do you want us to use, how do you want to use us in your kingdom even today? Amen.